in prayer. Do we got sick? We got sick. Raise your hands if you're sick or if you got somebody that's sick. All right, y'all look, raise them up and hold them up long enough that everybody can look around. We've still got sick. We're going to open up in prayer that God would heal the sick among us, knowing that no matter what comes, that God is faithful to the end. Uh, let's pray. Lord, again, as I come to you this afternoon, I just want to uh, ask a special prayer for all the sick uh, within our church. Um, for those, each hand that was raised, you know each and every need. Uh, and each and every place that strength needs to be given, Lord, that you um, would show yourself to us in the midst of our storms, that we would not be overwhelmed by the power of the storm, but that we would be overwhelmed by the power of the one who has called us out into the storms of life, uh, so that others might see that power being worked out in us, uh, so that as we go through storm after storm, that we would not fear the storm because we know the one who can calm the storm, Lord, and we wouldn't feel the, fear the storm because we know the one who, even in the shipwrecks of life, uh, is going to get us to those places that he's called us uh, to go. And I thank you so much for that. Uh, for the sick especially who are sick and, and because of their sickness or illness or pain or not able to join us here tonight, I just want to pray especially for them that you would just touch them. Uh, as they are at home or in the hospitals or wherever, and that you would uh, lay on the heart of, of uh, one or two or maybe all of us to, to call or to visit or to, to go and spend time with uh, these six so that they know that when they're not here that they are missed by us. Uh, I just ask that you would help us in that to be better and more useful and more faithful to serve uh, in the in the in the little things, because though they may seem little uh, to those who uh, you are sending us out to, it is uh, it is a, a great encouragement. I ask tonight, as we open up your Word, that your Holy Spirit would uh, move in our hearts, that you would move in this place in such a way that we would gain a greater understanding of you, that we would gain a greater understanding of the work that you're doing. Uh, in our lives as as individuals as and as well as in our lives as a community of believers, uh, ultimately, I pray that that in all that we learn and that all that we do that it would make us more faithful in service to you, uh, not that we are working in some way to to gain or warrant salvation, but that out of a salvation that 's been freely given to us that it would motivate us and encourage us to go out and serve, uh, whether it be in our schools or workplaces or uh, in the mission field, that we would serve because ultimately we want your name to be made great because it's worthy to be made great in this world. And there are still yet places where your name is not being praised. And I ask special prayer there that you would raise up missionaries to send out so that there would be no place in this world where there is no witness to the truth of the work of Christ and the life of Christ. Lord, let that be uh, something on our hearts that we just absolutely cannot shake, Lord, that there are people who don't know You. Uh, and as we explore tonight what it is that we believe and what it means for us to believe, I pray that in the back of our minds, this question of, well, what if someone doesn't have it to believe? What happens Lord, that we would understand that ultimately there is but one way to you, and that way is through Christ alone. So that means a very difficult truth that if there are those who die without knowing Christ, Lord, they will forever be separated from the presence of Christ, and they will forever be under the wrath of that is poured out on those who have rejected you. Lord, I, I ask that we would never forget this and that it would be something that is burned into our minds so that we would be uh, sober in all that we do, knowing that, that each thing we do matters and has an effect uh, that's going to go on into eternity. Lord, that being said, as I open up your word, uh, I pray that I would preach faithfully your word and that your Holy Spirit would Move through the preaching of your word to prick the hearts of those who are here tonight that we would serve you in a mighty way because you are so worthy of our service. It's in Christ's name. Amen.
All right, so uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We've looked at two aspects of this verse in the previous two uh, services. One, we looked at the shame of the gospel, and we see that in this world, uh, for those who have not experienced the power of this gospel, that there is in fact much to be ashamed of. We preach a crucified and rejected king who was rejected by the people who should have been claim should have been claiming him to be king All right so this is a shameful and scandalous gospel that we preach but this gospel last week we explored the power of it and where does the power of this gospel come from tonight's going to be an interactive night so y'all don't be afraid to to answer questions, <laughs> the faster that you answer questions, the faster we're going to be done. <laughs> the slower you answer questions, the longer we're going to be here. <laughs> All right. So whose power is it? God's power. And why is this a good thing? Because it's not our power, and that's good. Why is it good that it's not our power? We'd mess it up. We'd ruin it. It would be sure and destined to fail, right? If salvation was our responsibility, we would all be lost. Scripture makes that evident. And it's a good thing that it's the power of God. Why is it the good, a good thing that it is the power of God? Right? So it's good it's not us. It's good it is God. And why is it good that it's God's power? Right? We kind of talked about that a lot last, last week. It's, say that again. He doesn't make a mistake. This is a big deal. He doesn't make a mistake. Ultimately, we know that God does not fail. So what God starts is sure to finish because He doesn't fail in anything that He does. Right. So it being God's power, that's, that should bring confidence to us. I'm not going to drop the ball on my salvation because it's not my ball to drop. The ball's not in my court. It's in His court. Right? So this is a big deal, and we looked last week at the power of this God that we place our faith in, a power that can speak, and nothing becomes everything, right? A God who speaks, and death becomes life. This is the kind of God, this is the kind of power that we're talking about here. So those are the two aspects, the shame, and then the power that just completely overrides this. So as we begin to dig in our own lives, and our own Faith, as we work through this salvation that God is working out in us, we begin to see more and more of this power. We begin to understand it better and better in our lives. And ultimately, we're going to see that this leads us from faith to more faith, to greater faith. Um, The last part is 16 here. So let's just start at the beginning of 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we're going to break this up into two pieces. The first piece that we're going to look at is, is, is where it says it's to everyone who believes. So the gospel is for who? Okay, so is everybody saved? So are we speaking, or when we, when we say the gospel is to everybody, right? Does this, does this mean that God was ineffective, right? We said that it couldn't, He couldn't fail. So I want us to think about some of these things, right? I want us to, so if God can't fail, right? Do y'all, do y'all see where we're going with this train of thought? Do y'all see how heavy and weighty of a thought that is? So God can't fail. How many of you know someone who has died and not been saved? So a question that I, have then and there's going to be tonight there's we're going to what y'all are going to find is that early in the book of Romans we're asking a lot of questions because I want you to be thinking about these things and we're going to be filling these things in or kind of trying to dig through these things as we go through the book so did God fail for them no they felt well whose salvation's power from if they failed, it's it's still from God. Okay, okay. So I want y'all to I want y'all to think about this. So salvation, power of God, 
everyone, now I want, we're going to ask some, I want to, I want to really like muddy the water up, right? So if God has his sights set on you, is there any other option? If God has his sights set on you, can he fail in that? Right? So we see in scripture, Paul, the guy writing this book, right? And we've looked at his conversion experience. And what does God say of Paul? He's his chosen vessel. Right? So if God says, Paul, you're my chosen vessel, and he's chosen him to suffer, we see that. We've kind of looked at that in a past sermon. So he says, Paul, I've chosen you. Now the question is, can he fail in that? Is there somewhere along the way after the Damascus Road where God drops the ball there? Okay, so God chooses Paul. Again, I hope that you see the, where we're leading with this thought process, right? So God chooses Paul and God cannot fail in the work that he's doing in Paul. Do we, would we hold to that? Would we hold that as being a true statement? That God chose him and he couldn't drop the ball on his salvation. Now we've all raised our hands, right? We've all raised our hands and we've all said that we know people that God allowed, I'll use that term for now, that God allowed to die in a lost state, right? What does that mean then? Or what could that mean? So they didn't believe. They didn't make a choice. Now, I, I want to bring, because this is, this is good, and I want us to think about this. Right? I want us to think about this, because I think at the intersection where these things come together, we're going to find some mind-blowing stuff. And again, one of the fears is that I do an inadequate job of this, right? And which is why I always point you back to this book, because I think ultimately God can do a better job when you're in your personal study than... I can do, but I, I, I think that if we do a, if we do an adequate job of finding where these two roads meet, the power of God unable to fail in the work that He's doing, and somehow there are people who are lost, and God clearly chooses Paul because His Word says that He's chosen Paul, and He can't fail in what He's doing there. What does that mean then for the lost, right? That's the question that I want us to have in our minds as we're thinking about this. What, what part does faith play in this whole thing? What part does believing play? Right? So, the question that I would then pose to you, right? So, salvation is by what? By the power of God. Right? Now, when we do this, what I want us to do because there's some difficult stuff in this that I could take my own thoughts on these things and interject them in. But I could be wrong in my own thoughts on things, right? So what I want us to do is I want us to do an excellent job of seeing exactly what Scripture says to us and then not taking our thoughts and injecting them on Scripture, but taking Scripture and letting it train our thoughts, right? And that's easier said than done, because when we open this book, we bring a lifetime of experiences to the table. And it's hard to tell us many times that we're wrong in what we already believe, right? But here's the thing, it's God's power at work, and I believe that God can change our minds. And I look at my life over the last decade and a half that I've known God now, and I, I look at all the things that I used to believe one way, and that He's changed along the way. So I believe that God can lead us to right thinking about His Word. So, what is salvation? That's why we're spending so much time in, in literally these verses, because the whole book is going to be unpacking these things. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Whose power is it? What truth can we draw from this? We've looked at it. It's not our power. Right? So whose work is it then? Because if it's not my power, and I put work into it, then what's going to happen? It's going to be powerless work and powerless effort. Right? But if God's putting work in, and God has the power, He is the source of this power, then the work that God puts in will be effective 
on us. It will, it will enact change in our lives. It will push us forward in our beliefs. It will take us from faith to faith. It will be from faith for faith. Right? So it's the power of God to salvation, knowing that not everybody's saved. Right? This is a truth that we know. We need to figure out how we ride a God who can't fail with apparent shortcomings. Right? Because from this you would say, well, if God, could God not save everyone? Is one question that I have when I approach the gospel. Is God powerless to save everyone? No. Then is God evil? No. So God's not powerless to save everyone, yet people die and go to hell, and you're telling me that He's not evil? But He could save everyone? You're saying that? How can you tell me He could save everyone, and then there are people who are lost, and will die, and will go to hell? So what you're telling me though is, when you say free will... When you inject that in there, you're saying that your will can somehow override that of God. Because you're saying God is powerful enough that He can save everybody. Yet you are powerful enough to undo that ability. Do you all not see where these things come together? And they seem to almost contradict in ways that are very tough for us to wrestle with. Because here's what I'm telling you. If God could save everyone, why didn't He save everyone? If He could... If he could, wouldn't that seem like the good thing to do? Wouldn't it seem like... Um, y'all tell me. Y'all tell me. Huh? So, so and then, I, here's, the, here's the thing. Here's the thing. And I want us to... I want us, do y'all see how uncomfortable this makes us feel when we think about this stuff? And I think that's good for you for the same reason that whenever I go into the gym and it gets uncomfortable for me in the gym, that I come out and it's better for me ultimately because I've had to wrestle and work through things, right? So this same kind of wrestling in our minds, wrestling with these thoughts, I don't want us to be afraid of them. Because if God is the God of truth, then what do we know? That no matter how wrong we could be, God is the God of truth, right? So we hold to that. Right? We hold to that and we fight towards that as we dig through Scripture and we say, well, what does Scripture say? Right? So as we fight and as we wrestle, I don't want you to feel bad about it feeling uncomfortable. I don't want you to feel like you are at odds with me. Right? I want us to wrestle together in this. Because like I've said in past ones, like, and, I, and so there tends to be two major ways of looking at these ideas that, that I'm bringing to the table here. And if you haven't heard them, go Google them. Calvinism on one side, Arminianism on the other side. That tends to be the two major. Now these are not, these are not like, you know, like binary. There's one on one side, one on the other. There's gradients from one to the other, right? People can fall somewhere in between, and there's some places where are just like, I just don't know here, I've, I've not made it there yet. So there's not just one, and there's not just the other. If there is, then you haven't read enough Scripture, right? Because there's a lot of places in here where you go from one side, and you're going to be posed certain questions, and you come from the other side, and you're going to be posed other questions. So there's a deep mystery in this text that we need to stay close to the text to get it. Right? Because it's so difficult for us to grasp, and so difficult for us to understand, that if we stray away from what the text actually says, then we are bound to trip up again on our own thoughts and our own ideas. So it is. These are truths, I'm going to tell you, truths that you can hold to and bank on. Right? And I'm going to read from the Scripture as I lay these truths out for you. One... That salvation is, in fact, the power of God. So what that means is it cannot fail. God will not and cannot fail. Now, I've already brought up for you the what if question. Well, if it can't fail, then why are there so many who don't get saved? That's the what if, right? So let's hold that up on one side. And now we have the other truth 
that this salvation, this power of God, is to everyone who believes. Right? Now the question then comes, is belief effort? Is belief work? For... What do I mean by this? Do I, I mean this. If I believe and Kip doesn't believe, does that mean that I'm a better person? I've done more work than Kip. Because if it does, then that can't be what we mean by believing, right? Because we're saved by faith through grace, not of works, lest any man could boast. So if faith is in fact a work then my fa- the fact that I believe in someone else doesn't gives value to me, just like me doing work, working towards salvation, would give value if you could work towards salvation. So I want us to get this. I want us to ask ourselves and kind of wrestle with these ideas of, of what does it mean, what is this thing that's being done, and what is faith, right? So we're going to dig in through Scripture. Uh, tonight we're going to look through the book of of Acts. Um, so we're going to be exploring this idea first. Who is the everyone? Right? Who is the everyone? So it says, everyone who believes. So this is a true statement. So there's none of you in here, because this is what happens when we start treading on these ideas of election and predestination, is immediately the question comes, well, are there some among us that may not be? Right? Is it, and then what happens is it really gets scary because sometimes even Christians will start thinking, well, am I not? Right? Like I see this sin that keeps working in my life and I'm wondering, shouldn't I be farther along if I were elect? We know enough it gets dangerous for us and it starts scaring us. Because then we start saying, well, what if I'm not elect? Right? What if I'm, what if I'm not? What if I'm not elect? What if God didn't choose me? And so we get ourselves in these places where we, where it, Sometimes when we think about these thoughts, it causes more damage than good rather than just saying, hey, are you here and do you believe? Because if you believe, and the question then comes, believe what? Okay, so when we talk about belief, and we're going to explore that throughout the gospel, believe what? Right? How much do I need to know to be able to believe in it and it be something that can genuinely work when I place my faith in it? Right? So here's what I want you to know. That if you're here tonight and you hear the gospel and you believe, it's simple as that. There's no worrying about am I or am I not elect. Because the Bible preaches eight, not eight chapters of gospel before it ever steps deep, 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 deep into election. Right? So when we find Paul preaching the gospel, though that there's these ideas mingled in throughout, he takes the time to lay out the gospel first and then goes into these truths of election. So I want us to, to grasp that, that the gospel is preached, right? Don't worry about whether you're elect. Whether, worry whether you believe what's being preached, Right? Worry whether you believe it. Do you believe it? Has it pricked your heart? Is the Holy Spirit moving in you? Right? Let's wait till after that before we start wrestling with whether or not you're elect. That's kind of an in-house debate, if you will. So let's look at this, everyone. We find in Scripture, and this is a, this is a big deal. Paul goes on after this to say the Jew first and also to the Greek. He categorizes two major groups of People here, what are those major groups of people? Mine says Greek, others will translate that word there, Gentiles. Right, so so who are the Jews? They're the Jews. <laughs> They're the people of God. They're His chosen people, right? Right? For what? Again, so the Jews are His chosen people for being a mechanism of what? Salvation. Ultimately, that salvation comes through whom? Jesus. And then we have everybody else. These are the two major groups. We have the groups by which God is working to bring the Messiah into the world, and He's working to bring the Messiah in for who? Everyone. Not just the Jews. Not just those by which He came into 
to be in this world, but he came through these people for the entire world. And that's what Paul is saying here, and that's what was very hard for the Jews of this day to wrap their minds around. So we find in Scripture very, very interesting things. So what is the sign? Like if you're, if you're, if you're in here today and you're wondering, am I saved? Do you know the, one of the big and easy ways to know if you're saved? Do you know what the sign of a Jew was? That was a pretty easy thing to know if you were. Right? You're not mistaken that one. Right? Now I want you to understand this too. That we as Christians... (laughs) Get your minds out of the gutter. (laughs) That we as Christians have been circumcised of heart by the Holy Spirit. Right? Right? So the evidence that we are God's is that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. True? If we look over in Ephesians, so this is actually where we're going to end, but I want us to look at this and then we're going to start and dig our way to here. So Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. Who were the Ephesians? Y'all know? Were they Jews? Gentiles. Right? In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So, And you can look throughout Scripture, the promise of the Holy Spirit coming as a, as a sign that you are... That you are sealed for God. It's a sign similar to circumcision. Circumcision was in fact just a shadow of what was going to come and what was going to take place. God circumcising the heart of people. Right? So if you want to know, do you belong to God? Then the way that you know is, is does the Holy Spirit dwell within you? Right? How do you know if the Holy Spirit dwells within you? Go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. You can look at some evidence there. The fruit of the Spirit will be manifested in your life if you are a believer. If you question what? I don't know about that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. Um, there's, there's, yeah, that would be definitely debatable. I think there's times where everybody comes under weight that you would question, Right? But here's one thing that we, that we know that God will not fail in what He's doing. So you may be pressed and you may be perplexed, right? Perplexing is like, I don't quite get this, right? But God is in you working out something greater. So is the Holy Spirit working in you? Right? Now, to look at this... I want us to go and look at some, this is, this, to me, is some of the, this is some of the most interesting places, uh, in Scripture. Because it can be, it's, uh, I think at times, some of the most confusing places in Scripture. Um, and if you're interested, I didn't make this up, and I actually was studying, it was back in October 2013, R.C. Sproul is the, preacher who uh, I'd seen this information and it kind of got me off on this rabbit trail and uh, the Lord for his purposes has kind of um, led this to be kind of the way to explore this everyone who believes exploring who everyone is knowing that at this time in history that, that <clears throat> excuse me that there was for the Jews and the early church a question as to what this everybody Man, and we find in a very miraculous way God showing clearly by His power who this was by and who this was for, right? So this is the interesting thing that you'll find here. How many Pentecosts are there in Scripture? How many Pentecostal events take place in Scripture? Yeah, so we, we find the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, 
right? And when I say Pentecostal events, what happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit poured out in power, very clear, very evident, having a major effect when it happened, right? So this is what we're going to see here. Uh, let's look, first we're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 1, um, verse 4, or, yeah, verse 4. This is the promise that Jesus made to the apostles that this, in fact, the Holy Spirit would be sent. So, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So I want you all to kind of put that in y'all's head, that Jesus is promising the early church that the Holy Spirit is going to come and baptize them. And I want us to see what that looks like. And in this, we're asking a question, who is this everyone who can believe, right? So the gospel's for everyone. And I want, I want us to see in Scripture that God has four particular events where He shows four broad, I'll say broad people categories in which a Pentecostal-like event happens for each of them. Right Now, as we look at these events, these events are probably those events that if you've ever studied the book of Acts, have caused you to ask questions. Like, you see one place where you have believers and they're baptized, and they're baptized and the Holy Spirit doesn't come. And you say, well, why did the Holy Spirit not come when they were baptized? I thought that that's the way that things went. I thought that that's the way that things went down. And then you find that the apostles have to come and the apostles are laying on hands. And what is this? Because that seems a whole lot like man involved there to me. He said, what if Peter just said, nope, not going. I'm not going to lay my hands on with the Holy Spirit. Not have been poured out. Like There's some places in the book of Acts that are very, very, very strange. And they all seem to involve the outpouring of God's Spirit. And what I want us to get here is that it looks strange unless you look at this narrative as a whole. Right? Unless we draw back and ask, why are these strange events happening? What's going on there? What's being told to us by them? So here's what I'm going to tell you, and we're going to look at these four major groups of people, right? So y'all hear me clearly, because I'm going to go through the four, and then we're going to read them. There are the Jews, right? Who are the Jews? Specifically, I'm talking about the Jews who were followers of Christ during his earthly ministry, his disciples, right? The day of Pentecost comes, they've obeyed, the Holy Spirit is poured out, we know the story, they go out in the streets and they're preaching and the people that are there hear them in their own tongue and they're like, these guys have got to be drunk and I'm thinking to myself, I need to get some of that whenever I go to Honduras (laughs) because man, if I could take a sip and not have to work like two hours a day for like a year and a half or whatever, it would make it a whole lot easier. Like, if you could just drink on something, right? So, they're like, these guys are drunk, because clearly when you drink, you speak in other languages. right? I don't know if any of y'all have ever drank in y'all's past life, but I doubt any of you spoke in other languages. right? So these guys come out, Holy Spirit's poured out on them, they're speaking, and everybody's like, wow, I know what they're saying. And it's the Gospel. And it starts pricking hearts. Now, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent, be baptized. Right? Repent and be baptized. And then, huge work done within the church that day. Thousands added to the church. So this is the one. We've got another event. So persecution comes on the church. The church scatters. The first place they hit is Samaria. And we find this kind of event happen again. And this is one of those events where the gospel is preached. And Kip preached on this, uh, was it last Sunday morning, I think. Uh, you got Philip going out and um, they're like hearing the word and being baptized, yet the Holy Spirit's not coming. So you got another event there, the Samaritans. Now, what do we know about the Samaritans? The Samaritans are kind of like, they're like the Jews that don't go to church, right? Like they're the ones that are like, you know, they kind of got mingled out in the world a little bit. And, you know, the world's culture kind of intermingled. They started marrying outside of who they were supposed to marry. And just overall didn't work for them. But the people hold to the same thing that the Jews hold to. So it's, you could think of the Samaritans almost as like the brother that never shows up to the family reunions, right? Because something happened in their past and now they just don't talk anymore, right? So much so that you see uh, all the events throughout Scripture where even like Jesus 
he's going to give a story about somebody doing good. And, and when you do these kind of stories, you want to use the worst person possible. And who does Jesus use? We know the story is the story of the Good Samaritan. So he's giving this to the Jews because the Jews did not think highly of the brother that didn't come to family reunion, right? So you got that event happening to them. So both really Jews, one Jews kind of intermingled with the world. Then you have what's called the God-fearers, right? These are Gentiles. They're not Jews, but they know of the God of the Jews, and they fear this God, and they go through rituals and ceremonies. In the Old Testament, you would, these would be kind of like the ones that are proselyted in, right? So this is another. So you've got Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles who fear God, and then Gentiles which Scripture say are far off. If we go back over to Ephesians, um, and we look at what Paul writing to the Ephesians, the reason that I would say this about the Ephesians is that he says in chapter 2, verse 17 about them, he said, He came and preached peace to you who were afar off, and peace to those who were near. So, so I'm going to classify these Gentiles as Gentiles who are far off. So two categories of Gentiles. One, that are God-fearing Gentiles that know of the culture of the Jews, and then you've got the others who are far off, who are not culturally influenced by the Jews Right? So this would be the rest of the world. Right? So these are four broad categories of people, and I want to tell you that a Pentecostal-like experience happens to all four groups of them. And it happens in very, very similar and very, very different ways. Right? Enough so that what we can find when we look at this all together is that it's not the laying on hands, and it's not the baptizing, whether it's in the name of John or whether it's in the name of Jesus, but it's the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit, right? It's God doing it. Because everything that a man would do, somewhere in one of these four, it's either out of order or backwards. And the one thing that is consistent is that they believe the preached Word of God and that upon belief, God chooses to give powerfully His Holy Spirit. Right? So God shows Himself in these four that we're going to read that who's the gospel for? He shows this, that it's for everybody. Those four groups of people that you could categorize them into, that's everybody that you could categorize into one of those, right? So you got the religious, the religious but they're kind of not following the rules. You've got those who are unaccepted or would be unaccepted by those who are religious, yet they want that religion, they fear that God, and you got those that ain't heard it and don't care about it, right? And who's the gospel for? Every one of them. So let's look at this. Um, Acts chapter 2. Verse 1. So this is the day of Pentecost. When the, day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house they were sit, uh, where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began, <clears throat> excuse me, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we saw and we read in Ephesians that, that God is sealed with what? The Holy Spirit, right? Now we see the followers of Jesus who's, who He said, don't go out yet, just wait here. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you like He promised before. Uh, over in verse, chapter 1, He says, You heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And this happens here, and we call it Pentecost, right? This is the day of Pentecost. So this is that first group of people. These are the ones that were Jewish, and they were following Christ. There were His disciples in this world. They then go on to preach immediately after receiving the Holy Spirit. And we find over in chapter 2, verse 38, the, the end result of this, what they have to say. They've preached the gospel, and now uh, what do we do? And uh, Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children 
and for all who are far off, to everyone whom the Lord, uh, who everyone the Lord our God calls to Himself. So, Holy Spirit poured out, preaching done, powerful result from it. Then verse uh, chapter, if we're over in chapter 8 now, uh, we see this second, so, and we've looked at this, we know what led to this event from a past study. Uh, Saul is wreaking havoc among the believers. The believers are then scattered out from where they are, the first place where they come in contact with uh, others is in Samaria. And here we find this account, 8 and 14 is where I'm going to start reading here. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For they had, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So this is one of those places where when you read this, you read and you're like, what in the world's going on? Because what they, they do what they said to do. Jesus said to go out and do what? Preach the gospel, baptize in the name of what? In the name of Jesus. They're baptizing in the name of Jesus and no Holy Spirit being poured out. And then the apostles come or two of them come here and lay on hands. And now I'm the laying on hands because this is the part that starts scaring me. Because now I start thinking, if I'm reading through this, I'm thinking either somebody did something wrong along the way or somebody has to come and lay on hands. Right Now it seems like things were going okay. They were believing and getting baptized. Who believes a foolish gospel like this? Unless God's working in it. We've seen how foolish this junk is to believe if the Holy Spirit's not working. You believe somebody that the Jews rejected their own king and crucified him. This is the guy you want to follow? The winner there. Right? So this is a foolish gospel and it's taking hold in people's lives. And yet the Holy Spirit's not immediately poured out? Why is it not immediately poured out? Because that's what we think happens today, right? You believe in what happens. The Holy Spirit comes on you. Do you have to wait to baptism for the Holy Spirit to come on you? Is, is this what we hold to? Do, do we believe that I, I come to Christ and then I have to wait to be baptized? Then when I'm baptized, the Holy Spirit comes? Because if that's the case, then they missed it here. Because the Holy Spirit comes and then they have to, or they have to send somebody for the Holy Spirit to come. So that would seem a whole lot like works involved in that, unless something bigger was trying to be told, right? Unless some bigger story is trying to be told in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Unless God Himself wanted Peter and the apostles and the church to see that the brother who had gone astray was now welcomed back in. Could that maybe be why they had to go, right? Maybe Peter and John have to go because... Maybe they still hold a little resentment calling them dogs, right? Maybe they're still like, I'm not going to go through Samaria. I'm going to walk around. I will pass over the water here, and then I'll go down, and then I'll pass back over the water again so that I can avoid having to go into Samaria. Maybe God is trying to show even the early church, even the ones who are believing that He is doing a work much bigger than they could have imagined. Right? So, Who is Peter the Apostle to? Peter's the Apostle to the Jews. Right? He's the Apostle to the Jews. And then on the other hand, we have Paul who's the Apostle to the Gentiles. Right? Now I want you to notice an interesting thing here. Peter lays hands on these people here. Right? Almost in a way, maybe God's planning, I think, for us, these jewels of Scripture to show us that what he's doing, we could never have imagined or never have even put together, right? Even in the way that he uses to word these things through this book. Maybe he's telling something that we need to grasp to. So I want you all to hold on to that. Peter being the apostles, apostle to the Jews there. Him being sent to kind of the, the wayward group of the Jews. And then him witnessing, even as he lays hands on them, maybe in a way that says, hey... These are ones you need to be ministering to, right? These are ones you need to be hands-on with. 
Not that him laying on hands had anything to do with it. Because we're going to see a little bit later in the next one. Let's flip on. That laying on of hands had nothing to do here. And I find it again interesting because there's a couple of places where we find laying on of hands. And then we find this one in the middle of it where there's no laying on of hands. And it would almost seem... It almost seems like things are like just out of whack. Like I wish I could find order from this. Maybe the order that we should pull from this is it's God who does this powerful work. And it's for everyone who believes. Right? So let's go over to Acts uh, chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verse... There's a lot to look at here. Um, so in... And we're not going to read all of it, we'll kind of, re- we'll kind of recap it. Uh, in chapter 10, Peter has a vision, right? He has a vision of this thing coming out of heaven, and he's being asked by God to eat things that are unclean to him. And God says in uh, chapter 10, verse 15, a voice came to him a second time, uh, what God has made clean, do not call common, right? So, God's giving Peter a vision here, and in the giving of a vision, there's already people that are coming to get him, right? So God's purpose in this vision is to open his mind up that there's a bigger work going on, right? That I'm busting out of these areas that you're trying to hold in here. So be ready for it. Don't call uncommon, or don't call common what I've made clean, right? Who made clean? And what do you do? You just call it something. So you need to call it what it is, not call it something that it's not. And that's what he's telling him in this vision. And he sends people. Cornelius has sent people already. So we see in uh, verse 22 uh, of that same chapter. And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man. So this is the part where we see this third class of people here. These people who are not Jews, not Samaritans. They're Gentiles, but they're God-fearing. And this is what's said of him, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. Alright, so God comes to him, tells him to send for Peter, and Peter's going to preach a message to him. Right? So Peter goes there and he goes in and he starts preaching a message to them in verse uh, 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Notice here that he's saying these things to them, and, and he's like, you know what's going on. So this is these people are, are kind of nestled in, or they're acquainted with the culture and the goings-on of the Jewish people, and they know that God, and they fear that God, right? So get, get that. That's this group that we're talking about here. Um, so, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, verse 38 there, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and He, and he went about doing uh, good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. And we are witnesses of all that He did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put Him to death by hanging Him on a tree, but God raised Him from, on the third day and made Him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To Him, all the prophets bear witness, and, everything, and everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Wow, listen to this. Wow, Peter was, was still saying these things. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Do you see what happened here? Peter goes and lays hands on the Samaritans. Peter is merely preaching to these people the gospel. And you want to know, what do you got to believe? How simple does it have to be? Look right there, that's what he's preaching to them. This is what he's saying to them. While he was preaching, right? 
Verse 44, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Alright, now Peter goes back, he's reporting the church, chapter 11, uh, telling them what went down. Verse 15 there, he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. So he's, he's equating what happened to them as to what happened to the church that was in Jerusalem, right? So it fell on them as it fell on us, right? What do we call that? Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit poured out, they're doing crazy things here. It's very miraculous, very powerful, very man can't do it, it must have come from God kind of stuff that's going on. And Peter's saying the same thing happened to the Gentiles that happened to us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, and this is back in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus left them off, and he's saying, he's just repeating that, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this is the third group of people here that we find. We find the apostles on the day of Pentecost and the uh, the apostles' disciples that were following Jesus there we find the Samaritans, or we find the Jews shortly after that hear the message 3,000 added. We find the Samaritans believing God in a very special and unique way, pouring out His Holy Spirit there. We find now the Gentiles. Peter gets to bear witness to this. Peter is not laying on hands here. And this is where I would, in, in my mind as I'm seeing this and I'm trying to work these things out, why is their hands laid on some and why not on another? Right? This is where I would see that this is God showing us in His Word these, these places where Peter was going to be used in one way. He was going to witness here what was going to be taking place by not Peter's power. Peter didn't have to worry about this. Just watch it see what happens. Right? God's going to do this. Right? God's going to do this. So we find this, and, and the, they go back to the church, and the church is amazed. And now what we find, and we covered this in one of the earlier ones, Barnabas goes to get Paul. Right? And God's working. Again, Paul's, God's doing this work. He's been doing this work because Paul's been away at this point for like 14 some odd years wrestling with what's taking place in his life. He's now Barnabas calling him. They're going to Antioch and they're going to be commissioned to go out and preach God's word. And they do. And they preach faithfully. And then we find again over in chapter 19. Um, where another one of these kind of experiences happens. This is the fourth group. These are the people who are far off. These are the people that Paul is preaching to here in Ephesus. Um, I'm going to start in 19, uh, verse, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some of the disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now I want you, if you were to go back up, go back up and read in chapter 18, you're going to see that there was a guy there already preaching, right? There was a guy that was there, Apollos, and he'd been preaching, and apparently he didn't have the whole thing together, right? Because Priscilla and Aquila go and they kind of bring him in, and they're like, you know, you're preaching good stuff. This is Good, but let's let's rein it in here. Let's you look at this. This is a particular thing, so they kind of they kind of train him up, right? And now Paul's going through a place that he had already preached at, and he's asking them particular questions. One being, "Did y'all guys get the Holy Spirit? I hear I hear they're getting the Holy Spirit over here. Did y'all get it? They're like, Holy what? I didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. So Apollos make mention. That's probably what Priscilla, they're like, you need to mention the Holy Spirit in this. Right? Baptist Church, <laughs> I know y'all are scared of it. <laughs> Don't leave it out. <laughs> right? Let Priscilla and Aquila come on in there and be like, hey, you need to, you know, maybe there's some things you need to not just forget about in your sermon. Because <laughs> it scares you. <laughs> right? So now he's preaching them. They're like, well, 
what, what Holy Spirit, right? What Holy Spirit? Verse 3, and he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized. And what did we see again? Jesus was telling him, John baptized with water. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And again, this here, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So again, we see, go back and, and I would challenge you to go back and look at all of these. And what I'll tell you is that you're not going to find any specific ordering on what man does. Right? That's critical and key. Because salvation is not by the works of man. Right? And Peter, whenever Peter sees over back... Uh, Back in chapter 10, whenever Peter sees what God is doing, his response in verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, Peter declared, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we believe? He's like, God's clearly doing a work. Let's get these guys wet. Let's do what Jesus told us to do. Right? Does anybody here got reason not to? Like, well, the Gentiles, brother. He's like, well, God's clearly done something. But that doesn't matter anymore. Who can forbid it? Whose work is it? Whose power is it by? Could Peter there have said, God, you shouldn't have done that. You know them's Gentiles. You, know, you, you saw what they did all those years. right? You saw how they weren't clean and how they ate pig. That was the issue. <laughs> I know you are like, thank goodness for the new covenant, but you're like, yeah, they eat pig, Lord, and all those years I didn't eat pig, and I don't know that you should have poured out the Holy Spirit on them like this. No, he didn't. Right? He's like, God's clearly working. It's God's power at work here. So let's follow that. Let's follow that. And Paul here, same thing. He lays hands on them. And I want to tell you that it is not by His laying on of hands. Right? It was not by Peter's. Peter got to be intimate in there because there was a particular people that he was going to be working very closely with, the Jews. Paul here, I would say the same thing. Why, why is there a gap where Peter doesn't lay hands on the Gentiles and then Paul comes in here and now Paul lays hands on? Sometimes, sometimes I think God wants us to get in there and see Him using us so that we know that He is powerful and will. Right? Do y'all get that? That it's not by the laying on of hands that anyone received the Holy Spirit. It was by God's demand and decree. And no one would have been able to withhold from that. Right? But they got to take part in that. Right? This is a, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. God in no way needs any one of us to fulfill His plan. Right? He in no way needs us. We get to be a part of it. Right? He allows us to take part in this thing. In some places, He allows us to see it take place. In others, He, allow, he allows us to get our hands dirty in the work. But in all of it, it's God working. It's God doing. Paul could lay his hand on a thousand people if God wasn't going to pour out His Holy Spirit. Nobody would have been affected. Not any of the least except maybe got a couple of germs that Paul had. Right? And then it. It's God's work in all of this. We see that very clearly. If we go over, we're going to end in uh, Ephesians. Again, I want to read uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, and then I want us to go over and I want us to read something in Ephesians chapter to Ephesians chapter 1. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And this is the people that Paul's just laid hands on over here, right? Like he's in Ephesus, and he's like, y'all hear about the Holy Spirit? And they're like, what Holy Spirit? And he's like, oh, let me tell you about the Holy Spirit. Working through this, and boom. And now he's writing this book to them, right? So this is the people that he is very closely 
related to here uh, and the work that God's called him to. Uh, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I want you to notice nowhere in any of this is you remember like, you remember when I came? You remember when God brought me to you and I laid my hands on you? Whose glory? All of it. Is it for? To the praise of His glory. Again, over in Romans, for the sake of His name. All of this. Verse uh, 8 And 9 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. Be it your works or be it someone else's works. So that no one may boast. So that Paul may not boast. So that you may not boast. For his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, for good works. Do you get that? Do you get that? He created you for something. Right? Let's get our hands dirty in that. Who is the Gospel for? Now, who is the Gospel for? Everyone. Who is it the power of salvation for? Everyone who believes. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. We're going to see this phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek many times throughout this book. Right? Many times as he writes, he uses this phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why does he use this wording? Why does Paul use this wording? I want us to explore this a little bit. As we think about who the gospel's for, we've got this one that we see is for everybody, right? Now the question then would come, do I first have to do the Jew thing? Do I have to take a step over into Judaism? And then once I get my feet wet there, do I have to step then over into Jesus, right? Do I have to change my culture? Because Judaism was not just a belief. It was a culture and way of life. Right? So the question then, as the gospel is going out, is what effect does the gospel have on the cultures that it goes into? Must everyone become Jewish in their nationality? Must everyone do what the Jews have done for years? Is there a requirement that the culture molds into our identity for it? Or does the gospel penetrate cultural lines? Right? This is, I want us to get this. Right? I want us to think about this. I want this to kind of sit down on us. Because we have this, like, privileged, white American version of heaven where we're all around the throne speaking English. Right? The reason in Revelation, when you go to Revelation, it's in English is because we got a translation that's in English. Right? And if we, and if while he was writing this book, he needed to go into every single language and every single way that you would hear it around the throne, then it would have taken a long time. But what it tells us that every nation, every people, every tribe, every tongue, right? They're not all going to be made white Americans that speak English. They're not all going to be Southerners, right? They're going to be different. In many ways from us. Just like when we see the outpouring of the Spirit to each of these different groups. Each one was different. Each one had their quirks. Now here's the thing. God purges sin. He doesn't purge personality. Right? Do y'all get that? That you don't all have to act the same way. Dress the same way. Talk the same way. Or the same language. Like the same things. Do we get that there is a beautiful diversity in the church? And I'm talking about the church as a whole. Do we get that? So who is the gospel for? 
everyone who believes. Not everyone who conforms to your idea of what your life should look like. Right? I think we need to get that. That there's going to be people there that don't look like us. Thank God. There's going to be people there that don't think like us. Thank God. There are going to be people there that don't eat like us. They don't speak like us. Thank God to every single one of those things. How bland would it be if they all looked like me? How boring would that be? God has so much to show us. So here's the thing, right? I want us to get this. I don't want you to be confused to think that if there's like something sinful in a culture, that that doesn't get purged away, right? What I'm saying here is that God can redeem cultures, right? Without taking away what makes that culture a thing, right? Without taking away what makes that culture different and God glorifying, right? So as we go preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel, we share the gospel, right? We share the gospel. We don't try to force people into my style or my way. It's His way. And you know what we find all along the way? Is that God's power is going to go before us in all these things, making it very evident. And we're going to be like Peter. We're going to be standing sometimes in places, and we're going to say, can anyone withhold? Can anyone withhold? You better not say, hey, I got qualms with that. Because if God's pouring out power, you better get out of the way of that. Try to step into it, it will crush you. I want us to get that the gospel may be bigger than what we could ever have imagined. Who's the gospel for? Do you see how we can say the gospel's for everyone and now have two ways of grasping at that? That it is for everyone and not just our picture of everyone. Right? The gospel is so amazing. So beautiful. I can't wait.